Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio, Greenwashed, and it's our privilege tonight to have uh, Dr. Doug Edmeads from Ag Knowledge uh, as our special guest. And welcome, Doug. Um, we're keen to have you um, as a regular contributor on our show and uh, look forward to, to many more interviews. But in the interim, um, in the beginning, we'll get Jaspreet to introduce you a little bit more. Hello. Thank you, Don, and uh, welcome, Doug. For our listeners, and I'm sure many of us would be familiar with Dr. Doug Edmeets, but here's a list of a brief of what Dr. Edmeets has done in his working life. He has a master's in chemistry, a PhD in soil science from Canterbury University, a diploma in management from University of Auckland. He began his career in 1976 as a soil scientist in Ruakura Agricultural Research Center, Hamilton. He later on became the group leader for the soil and fertilizers unit in 1988. And with the formation of AgriSearch in 1992, Dr. Edmeads was the national science leader in soils and fertilizer. Dr. Edmeads has also had a lot to do with overseeing the research project that later on led to the development of Overseer, a nutrient management software that's commonly used around New Zealand. In 1997, Dr. Edmeads left AgriSearch and established his own company, AgKnowledge, providing farmers with nutrient management advice, publishing technical information for farmers and consultants, and undertakes research on the behalf of clients. So yes, there is a wealth of knowledge there and we are very grateful, Dr. Edmunds, you could join us today. Um, I'm looking forward to the interview. Well, fantastic. And uh, of course, uh, Dr. Edmunds has got several awards um, uh, to, under his name uh, over many years, including an Anzac Fellow in 1985, through to being a officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit to, for Services to Agriculture in 2013, and, and many others. Of course, he's got many other citations and has written some books and um, published quite a few papers. So, look, we'll we'll uh, work into his life. Uh, Doug, uh, how did it all begin? 1949, born? Fill us in. Born in 49, yes. Um, that makes me quite old now, Don. Um, born into a, a family of dairy farmers in South Waikato. Uh, I was the youngest of six brothers. Well, there are 10 in the family, and I was the youngest, but I had six, five brothers. So there's no room for me on the farm. Uh, so I had to use my nouse, and hence I headed off to university. Right. And so uh, sibling rivalry, did you, um, did you play rugby, cricket? What did you do? Did you uh, sort of... The the um the sport that attracted me most, of course, was cricket. I love cricket. Um, I, I I regret that my interest in cricket, my ability in cricket, did not match my enthusiasm, or the other way around. I think it is. Uh, but a wonderful game, cricket. The game that's most like life. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember Test cricket, and I used to think, uh, gee, anyone that can sit and watch that for five days has got to have a life somewhere um, better, surely. But um, the older I've got, the more I, I realise it is a game of high skill and high, um, mm -hmm. high cunning, you might say. 
Yeah. You know, a lot of mouse. So that's perhaps uh, why you're a scientist. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. So, so look, um, you've done quite a bit of radio and uh, with Jamie Mackay on the country, and as mm -hmm. I did too, you've you've stood the test of time a bit better than me. Um, but you know, it's hard to get your story out, isn't it? It's really hard when you get given a five minute bite on a uh, on a show to do to do uh, justice to your subject. And so tonight uh, on the show. Uh, that will be replayed during the day, actually. So I've mm -hmm. called it tonight. Um, uh, we want to give you room to be sort of uncensored and let let you get more time to get your story fully explained. Because I think while you write about it, it's really good to hear it uh, from from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So where would you like to start? Um, well, I'll, I'll, no I'll, pick up, I'll pick up on that thought that. Um... One of the things that's um, driven me, I suppose, and, and the things I've done uh, is that farmers are being bombarded with all sorts of infomercials, advertising, et cetera, et cetera. Most of it um, uh, pseudoscience. And uh, that, that appalls me because uh, we're, we're a nation of farmers. Farming is our biggest activity in town. Uh, and yet the, the, we can't get the stories that we need to in front of farmers that they need uh, to uh, make good decisions on the farm. You have a, um, a quote under your uh, address on your emails from Carl Sagan. Would you like to repeat that? <laughs> yes, uh, the, the, the quotation is, um, the only anecdote to pseudoscience is science itself. Um, and as I just said, there's so much uh, and remember, I specialise in the area of soil, soil fertility, fertilisers. There's just so much, um, I'll be on PC about this, so much bullshit in the marketplace. And the, the crime of it is that fertiliser is the biggest item of expenditure on most, most farms. And so how that fertiliser dollar is spent has a big impact on the overall farming operation. And yet, uh, in, in this day and age, we it's a free-for-all out there. There's no Fertiliser Act. There's no definition, legal definition of fertiliser. Um, and so anything goes out there in, in, in farmland in terms of fertilisers. And uh, that's, that's something that, um, um, well, needs to be addressed. So, so I know we have a Fertiliser Quality Council. Are you not enamoured with, with the output from that organisation? The um, Fertiliser Quality Council is very, very weak. Um, it, it, it records the content, it makes sure that the, the content of what's in fertiliser is accurately recorded. But it doesn't deal anywhere with the efficacy of these things. So in theory, you can, you can um, uh, register on Fertmark, uh, say a liquid seaweed, true to label, um, but the fact that it's useless and ineffective as a fertilizer has not registered with Fertmark. So I'm I'm critical of that. Um, going going back at, before that, we used to have a thing called the Fertilizer Act uh, that was um, gotten rid of uh, years ago before the Fertmark scheme. Um, and now there's no legal definition of what a fertilizer is, and so anyone can sell anything and call it a fertilizer and we have examples of that of people effectively selling basalt rock to farmers saying the best fertilizer in the world, blah, blah, blah. 
that sort of thing grates at my scientific integrity. It really does. I was uh, reading about the incident that you mentioned in, I think, one of these uh, newspaper articles about the long-running saga about maxi crop, <laughs> and you know the fact that you've been dealing with what uh, the judge referred to as was it snake oil dealers? Yes, indeed. Or, yeah. yeah. Would you care to expand upon that? Yeah, sure. The, the background to that was that um, Don would know this very well. Uh, in the early 80s, the subsidies were removed from fertilizer. Um, and they were large subsidies and, and uh, served the country well. Uh, but the, the subsidies were removed. And into that market came a number of companies selling their products, inverted commas, um, claiming that they were as good as the traditional uh, fertilizers like super, um, but only at half the cost. And one of these was a product called Maxicrop, which was a liquid seaweed product. Um, they came into the market saying they were, were the answer to the farmers' needs. Um, some of us in, in, in agricultural science at the time took exception to that. They advertised on, on national radio, uh, national TV. And um, that resulted in a fair go program in which I was invited to speak. And I recorded to the, to the public that uh, we've tested this product and it doesn't work. The consequence of that is that MAF, Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries, was uh, sued for defamation, def defaming the product. I think that the number was 11, or $11 million we were sued for defamation. And so I went to court and the court case ran for a whole year um a lot lots of witnesses um from all over the world came and gave evidence and in the end the judge agreed with us uh, that the product uh, could not work based on what it contained and did not work based on the field trial evidence that we had so it was a a, a, a complete uh well um how, how do i say this uh it was a magnificent victory for science, I thought, um, in terms of establishing once and for all that truth is total defense and defamation. In other words, uh, if what you say is true, you cannot be defaming. Like, uh, in other words, you can't defame someone who's selling something which um, a product which doesn't work. So I, 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 this was a high point in my career, very informative in terms of my development as a scientist because it taught me the, le the lessons of the law. And I've used that a lot in, in my subsequent writings, um, uh, criticizing products and people complaining to me about they're going to sue me. And I'll say, well, that's fine. Truth is total defense. I'll see you in court. And they run away, of course. Um, and that, so that's been a great, um, uh, a great, uh, uh, what, 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 how should I put this? A great stop, uh, um, stop bank uh, in terms of um, uh, what I could and could not say. The, the tragedy of it all was that that many people in Wellington at the time and in MAF and uh, other organisations thought that, that this was a terrible thing that we did, uh, taking this company to court. But the point is they took us to court. We had uh, only left with the, the obligation to defend ourselves as best we could. And I'm delighted to say that science came through and then we won the, won the day. Well, isn't it interesting that um, after that, that still the definition of fertilizer wasn't 
uh, established anywhere in, in, in the statutes. Uh, you would have thought that would have been vital to have after that event. Uh, strange, do you find it strange that it still doesn't have a definition the way it needs to have one? Yes, indeed. Um, in fact, uh, as I said, people in Wellington, the bureaucrats, were very nervous about the Maxcrop case and they misinterpreted what it meant. They they interpreted it as meaning that, that don't say anything outrageous, it might get you into trouble, stay clear of the courts, blah, blah, blah. But in actual fact, from my perspective, it was quite the opposite to that. It meant that we had uh, uh, in, in, in cemented in, in the law that uh, uh, def the defence for defamation is, is the truth. And so providing we stuck to the truth about products, we were on, on sound, sound grounds. But the, as I said, the bureaucrats took it all negatively. Um, they wanted the Fertilizer Act to go because of all this problem, these problems. Um, and hence, the, that was the beginning of what, what became the, um, the Federated Farmers Fertmark Scheme. Um, and I argued at the time that it was going to be useless, that scheme, if it doesn't, didn't deal with the issue of uh, the effectiveness of products. But of course, it, it didn't. And so that's a shame all around, really. The way I see it, that case is actually science being useful to farmers because what use is science if it's just isolated away and it's not of practical use? But I wonder, you know, I see you talking about the bureaucrats in Burlington not being happy, despite you actually sticking your neck out and providing a service for, you know, for the farming community for whom agricultural science and the research centers are supposedly set up for. Mm. But did was that experience, was that in some way a catalyst of you setting out on your own? Because you see, or at least I see, career scientists who will not leave their jobs, who will retire mm. from those positions, yet you chose to stick, you know, to go out on your own. Hmm, interesting. That takes me right back to the reason I became a scientist, a soil scientist and an agricultural scientist in the first place. Um, McMeekin, the, the founder of uh, the forebear of Rurukura um, Research Station, was used to quote and say that science, agricultural science is of no use unless it's supplied on the farm. Now, for some reason um, of birth, I don't know why, I got a double dose of that gene. Um, and I became very adamant that that, our, that what science we did must be shared with the farmer. What well, what other purpose did I go into agricultural science for? And there's a lot of us in that era, uh, to, but to help agriculture and help farmers. And so that's that's that was just a given in in my day. But of course, things changed when they decided to politicise and commercialise science. Uh, and then now the purpose of science wasn't to inform farmers, uh, but but to make money for science, which I couldn't live with. And, and so that period um, that we're talking about now, around 86 to 92, mm -hmm. um, longest civil case in New Zealand's history at that time, I'm not sure whether it's been superseded, but um, what did it take a toll on your, on your um, personal sort of demeanour and, and life, because uh, it's it's a big deal. It's a pretty big deal to take on something that big. It was very, very informative um, and instructive to me uh, and really, I guess, formed the foundation for um, what became my second career. I, I, I could no longer tolerate um, 
the way science was going, that, that I was told that my job was not to inform farmers, uh, but to make money for the company. This, this was the beginning of the commercialization. I couldn't live with that. And so I set out on saying, well, um, I, I, the old public service model of, of uh, scientists was using our brains to help farming and, and New Zealand. And so I thought, well, I, I could possibly do that in a commercial setting, hence setting up Ag Knowledge. And, and so um, the time out, when you reflected on your time out around mm -hmm. 90, you know, mm -hmm. perhaps, perhaps 1998, mm -hmm. um, what did you do? You know, your soul searching, was that part of it? Just, just oh, very, very, recalibrating very... your body and your, and your yeah. mind? Very much so, Don. Um, uh, I when 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 the CRI reforms happened in 1991, I think 92, I became the National Science Leader Soils and Fertilizer Group, um, and I initially embraced the reforms because they talked about um, science and, and commerce joining together and and working together for the betterment of one would have thought everyone. Uh, so initially, I embraced. Uh, the reforms, but over time I became very, very, very cynical about the whole thing, um, because the the um, the purpose of science was was being undermined uh, by the need to make money for the company, and that destroyed the, in my view, destroyed the integrity of science. It still does. It's even worse now than it has been. Uh, it still does undermine the integrity of science, and and no one benefits from that. Certainly not the farmers. Uh, and agricultural research is in a terrible state at the moment. And I look at your website, uh, Dr. Edmeads. That's dougedmeads.com. And under publications, you have been very forthright on this issue. Your paper there, I downloaded the PDF that states is the commercial model appropriate for science. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you don't mince your words when you say that this commercialization commenced mm -hmm. in 1990 with the formation of Crown Research Institutes required to undertake public good research and pay dividends and profits and running completely on a commercial model. And Don and I have often talked about, we had a really small country, aren't we? Five million, mm -hmm. a tiny island at the bottom of the Pacific. And the amount of uh, money that's going, the amount of research institutes mm. we have, it just boggles the mind. Mm, mm, mm. Well, going back to Dawn's point and finishing that off, um, so I, I became very concerned about what was happening to science and uh, it affected my mental health. Uh, and I got out and had a year out of um, just thinking about things. One of the first questions I asked myself is, Am I going mad or is the rest of the world going mad? Is the commercial model the appropriate model for science? And it didn't take me long and through reading and doing my diploma to realise that of all the models of organisation, it was the worst model for science because it's the one model that compromised the purpose and integrity of science. So once I got that, to that point, I had um, my madness disappeared a little bit. Uh, not... Um, and and I, I gained a better equilibrium. And that's when I decided, well, hell, I'm going to do something about this. Um, and the heads are starting to write um, material for farmers to benefit from. Yeah, and I remember that period, Doug, and I remember when you sort of started uh, your 
more um, vocal um, um, media work. And uh, I sort of remember also in the, in the 90s, when I started in Federated Farmers, some older farmers telling me that all oh, this blue sky science is just rubbish. We've got to have it commercialized. We can't have this um, <laughs> pot of gold uh, that everyone's just at the honey pot and we don't know where it's going to go. So what's the point? We've got to have a commercial thing. And that was the big push for me. Uh, or to me from older farmers at the time mm. so it's it's like uh you were railing against that and and in my view rightly so because of what we see today as you point out is it's even worse uh <laughs> by orders of magnitude um mm -hmm. uh for the likes of climate science anyway um yeah so it's so how did you, science, how, how, how did you break into uh yeah, you must have been under a bit of pressure. How did you break into this and sort of regain your sort of mojo for for talking about this stuff? Um, well, yeah, I had a, a year out and started thinking about things and um, uh, found myself uh, at odds with much of what was happening in society and agricultural research. Uh, and so I decided to, well, put my own foot forward and, and, and do something about it if I could. So that, that's when I started up Acknowledge and writing the Fertiliser Review. Um, but going back to your point, Don, um, yeah, the, the, the point about the paper about is the commercial model appropriate? Yeah, that was a big um, one thing I learned that year doing that diploma, reading about the different models by which society is organised, whether it's not-for-profit or public service or commercial. And reading about that and looking at the values and that under underpinned those different types of um, commercial uh, different types of structure, uh, so that gave me the the confidence to say, well, um, there used to be a very very good public service model um, of farm advisors uh, who did wonderful work over many many years informing farmers and and informing agriculture about science, and I thought, well. And that though that whole movement was based on the values of integrity, honesty, good sound science, etc. And so I thought, well, maybe I can develop a company which represents those same values, but it has to make a, a dollar to um, to work. Uh, disappointed me that farmers felt that they had to be commercialised. Um, I think I hope now they've learned their lesson that that was the worst thing that happened to agriculture, uh, and. We see the worst of of what's happened now, and and I hear farmers, and uh, um, hear, hear farmers telling me about this the plight of science, and and the best example of uh, I've written about the commercialization and politicization of science many many times, and the, and we have a, right now doorstep right now a beautiful example of the consequences of doing that, and that is of course region regenerative agriculture. It's absolute pseudoscience. It's bullshit. Uh, and yet this government um, have decided that they uh, are right and they will invest uh, at the moment. I think they're investing about $79 million in regenerative agriculture. Uh, for heaven's sake, uh, what's that about? And but that's a, a great example of, of the dangers of commercialising and politicising science. When the RA thing struck uh, there was a group of us who got together and said, this is nonsense. And we informed the, the then Minister of Prime Ministries, um, what's his name? I forget the name. Uh, very forgetful name, I think. Damien um, O'Connor? 
I mean, that's the one that's what um, informed him that this is nonsense. Uh, but no, no, he was adamant that he was right and that regen agriculture was going to be the best thing for, uh, since sliced bread for the New Zealand farmer. Well, it's an absolute joke. There's now evidence coming to light showing that it's just a nonsense. Um, and so we're on a, a $76 million ride to hell on, on this whole regenerative agriculture nonsense. So Dr. Edmeets, what has this 73 million funded in terms of region? Because I know quite a few trials that are happening. I know this advisors who are virtually mm. like, you know, salesmen touting their wares. What has the 73 million exactly gone into? Well, there, there are a number of projects uh, that, that I'm aware of. One, uh, uh, a major one in, in the Hawke's Bay is looking at the, the potential effects of regenerative agriculture on improving soil quality and reducing um, climate emissions. Um, others have looked at um, the economic viability of, of regenerative farming as opposed to conventional farming, and they don't, the evidence coming from that doesn't look good at all. But we also have evidence coming from farmers themselves, the, the Southland couple who um, initially embraced regenerative farming as being wonderful, uh, only to have their farm sort of um, turn and uh, become very, very sick because of the lack of nutrients. And this is crazy. You know, one of the one of the tenets of, of regenerative farming is that you can reduce or minimise or get rid of fertiliser inputs. Well, that's just an absolute nonsense. If you're farming, you're taking nutrients off the farm. If you're not replacing the nutrients, you're going backwards. There's no compromising about that. You said before about my being pretty uncompromising. It, it has to be spelt out in ways that people can understand. If they're not putting fertiliser on, replacing the nutrients they're taking off, they're going backwards, full stop. So, so Doug, is it fair to say that in some areas of New Zealand where regen ag is being touted as useful, there's perhaps a surfeit of, sorry, a surplus of um, fertiliser or phosphates or nutrients in the soil already, and all these guys are doing is mining it until there's nothing left, and then there will be a depleted soil. Is that how you see it? Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. And um, uh, it's, it's the same problem uh, um, affects organic farming. You know, you, you get these people saying, we've been organic farming for 10 years, and it's all good, we don't put fertiliser on, blah, blah, blah. But... Uh, but all they're doing is mining down the nutrient reserves they built up over time. But, you know, you can't defy chemistry in that manner. It's just crazy. So, so a basic question uh, here is um, how or when is the world likely to run out of these nutrients that we need to add from a specific spot, say, that's getting phosphate out of um, a mine somewhere in the Pacific or in North Africa, uh, bringing it to New Zealand, uh, changing it into superphosphate, for instance, or even leaving it as a reactive rock, mm. and then transporting our food around the world. Mm. Um, there seems to be this fear of the future with a lot of people that everything's going to run out tomorrow and we should stop it and make us all miserable. What's, oh, yeah. uh, mm. how, how's that work for you? <laughs> not very well at all. I'm, I'm not a pessimist about these matters, uh, peak soil, peak oil, all that sort of stuff. Um uh, for example, looking at phosphate reserves, the last time I did some sums on that subject, there was something like um, uh, 20 generations of phosphate reserve, known phosphate reserves in the world. That's known reserves. There, there are reserves which we don't know about, and the reserves which we do know about, which aren't, aren't being used at all. So um, 
I, I don't think we're going to run out of, of those important reserves at all. Um, sure, that's, it's, it's uh, important that we make, make sure we use nutrients effectively and efficiently. That's no, there's no question about that. But that's quite another matter. We're not going to, the world's not going to fall over tomorrow if we stop, stop putting fertilizer on. So, so, so an adjunct to that question is, if there was um, uh, GE, GMO type um, grasses or fodders or things that mm -hmm. can produce a lot more uh, output with mm -hmm. the same or less fertilizer, is mm -hmm. that at all possible? Because theoretically, to grow stuff, you need inputs. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you modify that? Well, well, of course it is. You know, we, we, it's very hard to predict the future, but from this moment, we can say that one of the reasons why we use so much fertilizer in this country is because the most important part of the pasture is the clover, because uh, clover fixes nitrogen from the atmosphere and that's free. Um, but clover has a very, very weak root structure. And the reason why I have to put on so much fertilizer is because to, uh, is to, um, modify its, its poor root structure. But think about this way, um, gene technology. Why don't we develop a, a clover plant which has a, a good root structure like ryegrass or a good root structure like brown top, which can survive in low fertility areas and still produce? You know, um, we've, we've stopped thinking positively about the future. And one of the reasons for that is because science is just agricultural science in particular, is being cut off at the knees. It's, it's no, a big thinkers out there. Yeah, and no, I look, thanks for that. It's a great, it's a positive way to to think about stuff. And I, mm. the mm. book that I read, and I don't read many books, but Matt Ridley's The Rational Optimist made uh -huh. me mm -hmm. really think about um, why anyone would ever want to be negative about the future of the world. I mean, mm. it just it just doesn't add up. If you're a negative, you know, if you're trying to stop the good things happening. Mm -hmm. um, what are you really trying to stop? You're, or stop everything? You're trying to stop good things happening mm -hmm. and evolving. So I don't get it, but we do have these people that fear the future, and they seem to have the uh, ear of um, at least mainstream media. But they haven't got the ear of reality check radio. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad on the moral high ground. I'm glad about that. There's another book uh, subsequent to Ridley's book, which I, I agree was a wonderful book. Uh, this one is by Steven Pinker, and it's called the Enlightenment Now. Um, and it, it more or less is the same message. You know, if we look back at, um, um, uh, at the records, for, for, say, crop production around the world, and, and uh, when we look back it's all, um, and see what's happening, we, we're always improving, improving, improving. I'll give you an example from a soil science point of view. The longest running... Uh, trial in, in, in soil fertility started in 1850 in Rothamsted in, in Britain. Uh, and in those first couple of years, they grew about a ton of wheat per hectare. Now, on those same plots, uh, they're now growing about 10 to 12 tons. Now, all that's because of science and technology and better weed control, better fertilizer use, blah, 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 blah. So why is it that when 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 we look back, we see this huge progress that humanity has, has, has made, and called the Enlightenment, of course. Um, why is it that, that, that today we're full of doom and gloom and we're going to ruin the planet, blah, 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 blah? I don't agree with it at all. Um, I'll just embellish that a little bit more. Um, 
one of the reasons for for this uh, uh, demise in, in in human spirit is, in my view, to do with uh, postmodernist thinking. Um, go back to the uh, early days, um, uh, Middle Ages, when 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 the truth was was uh, divulged by uh, by uh, religion. And so, if you had a crop failure. Uh, you were told to go and pray harder or pay, pay more money to the bishops or whatever have you. That was the Middle Ages. That gave way to what we call the Enlightenment, where, where the, the truth was uh, decided by facts and empirical evidence. And so if your crop was failing, you'd find the reason, the cause for the crop failure. That's given way to what's called post postmodernism thinking, which where the truth is what what you believe individually is the truth, nothing to do with the evidence. Uh, and, and so uh, we were in this philosophical time when our, our modern Western world is, is so insecure about itself that it's looking for all the reasons why it's going to fail again. It had, never has failed. It's always been wonderful. That's why I get very angry when I hear people deriding and undermining the value and importance of science. Science is important. It is valuable. And look what it's done for us in, in, um, over, over the years. For example, Don, if you were living in the Middle Ages, a good life would have been about 30 years. Um, come up to the um, so 1800s, you're living about 40 years. Uh, and now, of course, the longevity is about 80, 90 years, all because of science and technology. So why have we lost confidence in this most wonderful, wonderful thing that, that humanity has developed? Why have we done that? I don't know. I'd like we to have, I have uh, recently listened to a talk by our, uh, one of our leading freshwater ecologist scientists, Dr. Mike Joy, the other day. Um, this was a <laughs> oh, webinar. <laughs> this was a webinar, so I, I think he's quite at odds with you, with the view you have about the optimism. So this mm -hmm. webinar he gave was a part of a degrowth. Literally, this is what the subject was, degrowth, out mm here. -hmm. And uh, halfway through this webinar, he had a graph, and he had plotted two trajectories of the growth of human population. Mm -hmm. And he goes on to say that, you know, I was at 1940s or 60s, sometime around that time, he speaks about, and this is when nitrogen came in, synthetic <laughs> nitrogen fertilizer. He, and he goes on to say that had it not happened, the earth would have had 3.5 billion people. And look mm -hmm. at it, where we are today, mm -hmm. 7 billion and counting. And I was wondering, you know, what does he want to do with the rest? You know, the 3.5 billion that he was, uh, he seemed to be very sad about their existence today. Mm -hmm. Perhaps he should take a leaf out of what happened in Sri Lanka last year. <laughs> they stopped commercial fertilizer. I saw food riots. I saw the mm. president having to be escorted off by the army for his safety mm. and the Sri Lankan people uh, taking over the presidential palace, jumping in the pool. Mm. What mm. do they think is going to happen? It's almost like they would like to pretend that the consequences of what these scientists are peddling are, you know, let's just ignore it just happens in Asia. It won't happen here. Um, there's, there's lots of um, levels of, of discussion around that point. Um, but yes, reinforcing your point, Sri Lanka, by decree, decided to be organic and uh, went, went bankrupt, essentially. Um, 
uh, where else can we go with that? Um, about 40, no, about it's about 45% of the world's population now depends on nitrogen fertilizer for its, for its um, livelihood in terms of food. Uh, so what do you want to do? Close, close down all the nitrogen plants um, and let half the world starve? Do you want to do that? I don't want to do that. Um, but why not? Why don't we take a leaf out of the out of the Enlightenment era and say, look, human. You know, I'm not saying the world's perfect, but hu humankind has made such progress with science, um, such progress. And why have we suddenly lost confidence in that? And Mike Jaw is one of those people who is negative about most things. He would want us, like the organic farming people, to go back and farm the way that Grandpa did. Well, I know the way my grandpa farmed, and I wouldn't want to live that life at all. Um, we are very fortunate to have science and technology on the side of farming these days, where it's so much easier. We live longer, we have better lives, we have healthier, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I just don't buy into Mike Joy's negativity about life. But that's that's the pervasive malaise which hangs across our society at the moment. You know, um, farming's dead. Um, we all got to sort of tie the, the twine around the the farm gate and go home and uh, grow vegetables and uh, eke out a living. Uh, it's To me, it's just nonsense. People like that should go and read Stephen Pinker's book, The Enlightenment Now. Uh, if you look back at um, records, there's a very good website uh, called um, The World in Data. And you can look up there, uh, crops, uh, look at crop data going back over time. Uh, and choose a country, choose a crop, and whatever, whatever Whatever you choose, it always shows an increase and in improvement in crop yields over time. Isn't that bloody marvellous? Why can't we expect that to continue? Uh, the world will, population will control itself eventually. Um, we know we know that. Um, so we're not, you know, it's not doom and gloom in my view. But they are creating these warriors, aren't they? More like Mike Joy. Budget 22 has uh, just uh, spoken about $9 million that's going to be used to fund 27 students uh, about equally split between masters and PhDs to research greenhouse emission. And mm -hmm. that's all being propped up by taxpayer ratepayer money. Mm -hmm. And there we go, creating more of the mm -hmm. same, more people who are pushing along on that agenda. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I drove back from town this evening and there is this uh, sort of movement that has begun last year, I believe from the Waikato, this group, they call themselves your food producers, if you look them up, and they are telling farmers, the ones who think that, you know, farming is struggling to put up green crosses on their gates. So I counted seven today, and mm -hmm. I live in the sticks. Those are seven farmers who have put up those green crosses mm -hmm. uh, around their properties, mm -hmm. just showing that there is, there is massive mm -hmm. stress. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, I was uh, in, a, in a workshop and uh, I was sort of, you know, berated about saying that we can't uh, have a councillor, which is what I am on the Southland District Council, mm -hmm. presenting a climate denialist view to our ratepayers. That would be a huge <laughs> disservice. So mm -hmm. there is literally no debate. Mm -hmm. no, I, uh, well, we're touching on a, 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 a river of gold at this point. <laughs> but just Let's go there. Just, a point, uh, just to finish off that point. Um, I tell farmers, farming groups th these days that, that the yeah, farming's under threat. The biggest threat for farming 
is in extreme environmentalism as represented by people like Mike Joy, uh, because they undermine the confidence that farmers need to do what this country needs them to do to produce. Um, and sure, I'm not saying produce at the expense of the environment. Farmers are doing wonderful work in terms of environmental management, et cetera, et cetera. And we just need to continue that and we will solve this problem. You know, we, we look back and see nothing but, but good, but, but look forward and see nothing but gloom. Why is that? That's one point. Second point you're leading on to, of course, is, uh, is the, the fourth estate and how pathetic and hopeless they are at the moment. And that takes us right into this area of um, global warming. Um, and uh, there, I, I take a deep breath at that point. Um, the whole the, the whole global warming thing is, is, is not science, it's politics. And we can easily test that. Karl Popper, one of the great uh, uh, philosophers of last, last century, um, came up with a, a test for science, what is science and what is not. And the, the test he used or explained was uh, falsifiability. If you can't falsify something, it's not science. Religion can't be falsified, for example. So too with climate change, you can't falsify. There's no argument you can present to the alarmists which will falsify their view. If it rains too much, it's climate change. If it's too dry, it's climate change. There's, there's endless answers they have for, the, for this thing. So that we know that it's not science at all. Um, it, it is politics, pure and simple. But this country's gone mad on this whole thing. It really has. Um, and uh, I, I became involved in the climate change thing um, mainly because uh, because farmers would, um, on you sitting on the back of the bike going around the farm, and they would ask me about what did I think about climate change. And I would say, look, not my um it's not my speciality i don't know but i became very unsatisfied with that answer and so i started doing some reading myself uh, about um about this climate change thing and it, it boils down to some simple simple things like the climate has always changed for better or worse on, on on earth long before mankind found coal or oil or anything else uh, it's been warmer and colder than it has been now um, so what's what's this latest trend about? Um, that's one argument. The other another argument would be um, we know from the ice cores that um, uh, they look at the the, the uh, emissions of CO two and temperature from the ice cores, and they they can find they show that that the the um, CO two the the carbon dioxide concentration increases after the temperatures increase, not the other way around. CO2 does not drive the temperature. So there's lots of little examples like that. I don't have to go into the deep science of it all, which tell me and tell me that this is not science, this is politics. And unfortunately, this country has embraced this whole thing, hook, line and sinker. Well, did it strike you as uh, a fair bit of hyperbole when the prime, former prime minister in a valedictory speech yesterday said she would like to see the politics taken out of climate change. Yeah. I, I I couldn't believe that statement, knowing full yeah. well that she has been at the forefront of politicising climate change for Absolutely. eons. I, um, I don't I don't think she knew what she was saying, frankly. 
well, maybe not the euphoria of leaving uh, Parliament might have been too much, of course. <laughs> we, we could easily define fertiliser and, and put it in the parlance of 120 MPs in, in Wellington. Mm -hmm. That would be a bit mad, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. It would um, be. So, so, you know, you have a chief science advisor mm -hmm. uh, in the and advising the Prime Minister and heads of departments. Surely they must be unbiased. Surely. Mm -hmm. I... Um... Once I'd done quite a bit of reading about the, the climate change thing, I wrote for my own um, uh, purposes. I wrote a paper called "The Ten Reasons Why I'm a Climate Skeptic." Now, I use the word "skeptic" in its rightful way. Person who is not convinced on the evidence of a particular hypothesis. So, a skeptic isn't someone with long horns and, and green eyes. A skeptic is a normal person, like a scientist. Uh, anyway, so I wrote this paper: Ten Reasons Why I'm Skeptic. And I sent it to both sides, people on both sides of the story, and asked them, please point out any um, um, statements of, of, of bad logic. Uh, no one no one could, no one has. And that was written about 12 years ago. Um, uh, so I, based on that, I became more confident to speak out about this whole climate change thing. It has done me a disservice, of course, because... I'm now regarded among my scientific uh, colleagues as a freak. Um, uh, it's done my reputation in that regard very, very badly. But what else could I do? Um, uh, th these well, things have to be spoken of. Well, you know, I attended a seminar in Invercargill about six months ago where a, a senior scientist sort of rubbished uh, another scientist and his mates from... Uh, from Princeton University, and I thought, you know, mm -hmm. no, the word, word, I can't, they're just not coming back to mind, but they were not pleasant. Uh, mm -hmm. They're de deriding the character of the other person's ability. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. a, a, an eminent uh, physicist. Uh, so when you get that sort of nonsense happening, you do have to wonder who's funding who and why they would be so vociferous against, uh, against a, a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And so linking back to that, what I've read about, for instance, methane and uh, biogenic methane, in fact, methane from any source, is that the physicists that I'm talking about are saying that it cannot uh, be uh, causing any significance, a warming of any significance anywhere mm. in the planet. It doesn't matter whether it's from a pipeline or the ruminant animal. It doesn't matter. Methane and nitrous oxide are so irrelevant, and yet... In New Zealand, there seems to be this belief that we can't let that narrative get any traction because mm -hmm. we'd have we'd have um, we'd have to eat some humble pie. Mm -hmm. I think the sooner we eat some humble pie, the sooner we can get on. Absolutely, it's it's just um, crazy. I've I've read that, that same work you're talking referring to, Don, um, and it's pretty convincing stuff uh, that that methane and nitrous oxide uh, cannot. Uh, affect the climate on Earth um, because of the absorption spectra and blah, blah, blah. I won't go into the detail. Um, but but there's complete denial among uh, scientists in, 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 in the, 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 the uh, alarmists in New Zealand. And the, I, I, once again, I go back to my theme of saying that the dangers of politicizing and commercializing science. This climate change thing is another example. Uh, the early example I used was um, regenerative agriculture. This climate science thing is another example where 
science has been politicized. And so the poor the scientists are, are dependent on, on money from the government uh, and therefore they will not speak out against um, uh, even if they know um, uh, that, 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 that the science isn't right. They can't speak against it because they'll lose their jobs or, or lose their funding. Um, that's, that's the trap that New Zealand has fallen into. And it's going to, when I, when I was writing the, pa the papers about um, uh, pseudoscience, a threat to agriculture, I became aware of the possibility that one day there will, be, there will come about a, a fraud in, in, in the world, in New Zealand, um, it, it showing exactly what I'm saying about the dangers of commercialising, politicising science. And so we now have two examples of where that's actually happened, regenerative agriculture and the bigger than that, the, the climate, uh, whole climate change uh, debate. Well, it's not a debate because the press won't let us speak about it. Um, just on that, um, I've got a quote here. Uh, this is from the New Zealand Herald some, some time ago about climate change. The media should not give climate deniers a platform. To allow climate denial is totally irresponsible for the general public and particularly for our children and grandchildren. That's the press uh, not doing what uh, the fourth state is supposed to do, inform the public. That's the press deciding that they are the 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 source and foundation of the truth in the world. That's a very, very dangerous position for democracy. Democracy is supposed to be, if it works best for people, it's open um, and uh, argument is free, free to happen. And you know, that is why, because like you spoke about the Herald, mainstream media hasn't given people like you and others, I am not saying any one position is right or wrong. I have my views on that, but the ability to debate to voice opinions is the mm. very least that can be expected. Mm. And yet that is the very same that I faced, you know, in my role here as an elected official. Now a workshop begins with uh, slides saying that we've seen the power of Cyclone Gabriel and what climate change has done and anthropogenic, and then it goes on with NEVA mm. data. And I, you know, raised my hand and I said, well, you know, how many of us have looked at uh, over the revelation, uh, revelations mm. of last six weeks? about mm. NEVA data and it being skewed and it missing, I believe 82%, 21 of the 24 biggest mm. storms from 1840 onwards. No, no, mm. no, that was not taken. Then it went on, the presentation went on to SSP. So we moved on from RCPs, SSP 8.5 and how wet and how dry mm. Southern is gonna be. So yet again, I had an issue about, you know, why are we using model 8.5 and so on. <laughs> and finally, when no one was willing to debate, I was told, you know, it is not a good position for an elected official on the yeah, council right. to take a position mm -hmm. that ratepayers mm -hmm. could interpret as being a climate denier. We, they said it would be an absolute disservice. Mm -hmm. And this is what we've come to. I know. No debate. It's yeah. like label someone, put them in a box, and there's that sorted. That's right. Um, no, I don't know the solution uh, to to these problems, you know. Farming is under threat from extreme environmentalism. Um, science is under threat because of this commercialization and politicization of science. Uh, uh, and I thought, good and hard, how, how are we going to solve those problems? Um, change of government will be a good start. Well, it'll be a start, but it's not, it needs to go a lot further than that. Um, we've, we've got ourselves in a deep, deep poo. Yeah, so you say changing the government's um, a start, but not 
complete start. I agree. Uh, you know, got to have a change of psyche right through the bureaucracy. And of course, as we've talked about, no one wants to um, vote for an early departure from a from a career or a job. So uh, turning Wellington on its head, uh, like it had <laughs> happened to it in probably 85 to 99, because when I first went to Wellington in 98, um, Lambton Quay was empty. Uh, mm. When I left in 2011, it was packed, uh, and it's probably double uh, that mm. by now mm. because of the um, job creation that's gone on through the government mm. agency. Mm. So no one's going to vote for an early Christmas. The turkeys in Wellington aren't going to do that. Mm. Mm. How are we going to clean them out? Do we need a major recession? Mm. Um, because clearly they're, they're destroying provincial um, provincial. Uh, effort. They are mm -hmm. really putting the pressure on us, and we need to regain some sort of parity mm -hmm. uh, back for the regions. And uh, that just seems light years away currently. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you feel. I, I personally, as a scientist, you know, brought up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, when science was regarded as um, not the holy grail, but certainly very, very important. And now to live through a time when science has de been degraded and undervalued as it is now. Um, it, it jars at my heart, it really does. Uh, but how to change that, I'm bugged if I know, Don. Um, I really don't, do not know. Well, I'm, um, I'm aware there's a, there's a new um, political party being set up called Heartland. It was around in the last election, but mm -hmm. this time they're having another go and it's, it's seeking to um, take regional uh, electorate seats for rural and regional New Zealand mm -hmm. and trying to get some uh, place in the parliament, like create the overhang is the, mm -hmm. is the plan, so that the parliament expands. And I would rather it diminished, but you know, if this is the way to fix it, mm -hmm. maybe uh, Heartland Party representing rural and regional New Zealand is the way to go. And one of our guests coming up, Jasper, will be um, the chairman of the Heartland New Zealand Party, or Heartlands as it's called. So maybe that's a, an option, Doug. But you know, I'm I'm on uh, don't we. I know you're a positive sort of a chap, and I'm. I think we're all positive, but we we know that this country could be so much better uh, if the makers were allowed to make and the takers would just uh, ease back a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, we do know that society does uh, do a lot of redistribution in a democracy, uh, but we think that the well, I think that the scales have tipped uh, too far to the redistributive side as opposed to the productive side. Mm -hmm. I agree I agree with your philosophy there, Don. I really do. Um, just just reflecting again on, on examples of, of how science has been corrupted in New Zealand. Um, I'm a member of the New Zealand Climate Science Coalition, uh, and as such, I get uh, information from all around the world, not just New Zealand, about the latest science and, and that's happening in this area. Uh, I remember early on when I joined, um, one of the guys uh, quite legitimately got from uh, Niwa, I think, Met Office, the, all the New Zealand uh, temperature data going back for 100 years. Um, and uh, when you plotted that data out, it's, it's about level. There's no um, evidence of any increase in temperature. Compare that with the Niwa official site, which shows a 0.9% degree centigrade increase. Um, in other words, the data has been what they call homogenized. Now, there are legitimate reasons for doing that. And we've sought from, the, the coalition has sought from the, the, the powers that be, the evidence upon which these adjustments were made. And they can't provide them. They haven't got the data. 
So we've got this whole ETS policy that we've got in New Zealand at the moment is actually based on the falsity. Uh, when is the public going to wake up to this? And, and then again, I come across the question of they can, the public can only be informed about this once the, real, the fourth estate gets the, the uh, returns to what it truly is uh, there to do. And there's a wonderful quote from Terry Brosnan, actually, on that subject. The purpose of journalism is to provide citizens with the information they need to make the best possible decisions about their lives, communities, societies, and governments. That isn't happening. So at the moment, what's really broken in our society is that the fourth estate has decided they know what the truth is. And that's very dangerous. That, that leads to all sorts of isms, communism, Nazism, all sorts of isms. Well, and of course, um, in New Zealand, we had the um, the broadcast fund. I've forgotten the, the exact title of it of uh, fifty five million to start mm. with. I, someone told me it's it's got a lot more, maybe doubled. And we had the prime minister talk about the single sort that she was the single source of truth. Um, mm. We've got a guy that's uh, running the biggest newspaper in the country, uh, acting like he is the power broker for Auckland. Uh, mm -hmm. His attacks on Wayne Brown, the potential mayor of Auckland, prior mm. to the uh, recent elections were mm. were atrocious. I declare I know mm. Wayne from a long time ago. I haven't mm. seen him in 10 or 12 years. But I just found um, that editor of the New Zealand Herald's attack on him um, a bit over the top, well, very mm. much over the top, mm. um, and he was clearly in favour of the other guy. I mean, the bias from these guys is unbelievable. Absolutely. They don't trust the citizens to um, make a fair decision, mm. uh, so they need to influence it. And so, mm. again, I repeat this on every show, uh, when I started reading about nudge units um, and how they operate, then it all came into my mm. head how the lobbyists work. And uh, once you're an educated lobbyist and you've educated yourself on um, nudge, being a part of a nudge unit or your behavioural mm. insights, mm. Um, it all comes into plain view. You're being mm. duped by mm. and manipulated by mm. this sort of concept. Mm. 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 Uh, so we've got it in New Zealand in space. Uh, that was a statement rather than asking you a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but right. I'm glad you agree. Yes, I do, do, I do, I do. And that that the fund you were referring to, Don, is uh, called the Public Interest Journalism Fund. I find it very galling uh, to have that name. It should be, I don't know, something else, befooling the public fund or whatever else. Mm, and, the, mm. you know, we've been focusing so far on this, this green agenda on the rural and provincial New Zealand, but urban New Zealand is not immune from it. Uh, and I, I dislike mandates. I've disliked the COVID mandate. I dislike this mandate of suddenly, you know, you need to go on EVs or e-bikes or whatever else it is, oh, because mm -hmm. I'm an adult. I, I can choose for myself. I can, you know, what I need it by terms of, say, medication or what, I, what I'm going to drive. I live out in the sticks. I have mm -hmm. two children. I lug their gear everywhere. And to mm -hmm. tell me suddenly that this is what is best for me, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. Now, urban New Zealand, look at the amount of money uh, just around you, Doug. The Tihuya, the train from uh, Hamilton to Auckland, how much has it been losing? Mm -hmm. It And it is not a surprise. They already knew, even before this train uh, was started, it runs, you know, on very little capacity. It seems weekends are the only high point. Mm -hmm. Even COVID-adjusted figures, it was running at 29% uh, below expected volumes. Mm -hmm. If Why don't we trust adults enough that if something is reliable, convenient, cost-efficient, mm -hmm. 
works for them, they'll do it. You don't have to mandate them. We don't live in a dictatorship for God's sake, or at mm. least we didn't when we last checked. <laughs> so the green agenda is not limited to just uh, mm. destroying rural economies. Uh, urban is going to have its fair share of it. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, just at the moment, it seems to me, and I'm biased, of course, that, that uh, the farmers are being asked to take their fair share, more than their fair share. And so that's what I'm barking about. Um, but how to get some change, I don't know. Um, I really uh, am, and sometimes I get very depressed about about, uh, about the situation. But the more I think about it, the more I think, well, I can, can only just carry on speaking out about this bullshit um, and hope, hopefully one day some people are going to see some scenes. So, so, Doug, we haven't even talked about the big boat, hey, Waka Ikanoa. Um, <laughs> we're all in this together. The other, the farmers consortium who uh, came up with a package to do a world first and um, ask the government to tax themselves. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't get that, and I never will to the day I'm finished. Uh, but anyway, uh, what's your take on farmer advocacy? Uh, Seems like a fair bit happens behind the bike shed and then uh, comes out as a fait accompli and then they get the farmer backlash. Yeah, well, I'm not close to all that, Don, but my view is that um, it's a consequence of the um, agriculture, farming, the, there's no clear leadership anymore. Um, and once again, that's a consequence of this uh, politicisation and commercialisation of science. Um, where are the fed farmers? Where where are beef and lamb? They're arguing among themselves now. Uh, where where are fed farmers? Dairy NZ. Um, where's their leadership on this matter? Dairy NZ have got people there who are quite capable of understanding the 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 science of uh, global warming as I as I can, um, but they won't say anything about it because um, they're I, I they hate it when I say this. They're they're fully uh, subsidised. Uh, um, group of, of, of scientists owned, owned by Fonterra. So, you know, there's, there's no clear leadership anymore in, in agriculture. And that, that's, once again, that's a consequence of, of the, the reforms that have taken place where it used to be the old Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries. Now, I'm not arguing we should go back to the public service days, but they did provide some leadership, at least at times. But nowadays, there's no one that the farmer can turn to and say, this uh, isn't good enough. Well, you know, in about 2008, Prime Minister Key uh, did take one of my confederated uh, farmers' aspirations, and that was to have a super ministry. Now, I know I'm getting, you know, people don't like that, but it was my idea, along with some um, senior members mm -hmm. of Feds, to have the ministry for primary industry. Now, the word for was key. Mm -hmm. We wanted to have a ministry that was absolutely mm -hmm. speaking mm -hmm. for the primary industries. And mm -hmm. in the old days, it would have been of. Well, yeah. what does of mm -hmm. mean? Of can mean the bureaucrats run everything. Well, I don't think we've got a ministry for primary industry. We've still got one of primary industry. Yes, the for mm -hmm. has never been picked up as the mm -hmm. key reason that I asked for that super ministry. Mm -hmm. To the credit of the prime minister at the time, he, he did take that idea up. I mean, I don't think the um, ministries in Wellington like that super ministry concept. They prefer mm -hmm. to run in their little silos. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I see it uh, quite clearly uh, when all this really, the rot really set in. And it was around the uh, 2008 period, actually, where 
uh, Minister uh, Smith brought back from uh, a trip to the Scandinavian countries, this new way collaboration or collaborative model. So we all talk, we all get uh, into nice little meetings, have a talk about stuff. Mm. doesn't matter whether it's fact-based, but we all come up with an idea that says X, Y, Z is going to happen. And mostly it's about turning down the dial on animal and agriculture production. Mm -hmm. That's how it seems to be. So mm -hmm. the word collaboration, in my opinion, mm. you, know, you and I can collaborate on stuff, but when it's forced collaboration, so it's coercion, it yeah. doesn't work. And mm. that's where we are. So again, I'm making a big statement, but I think you probably observe that too. Yeah. Um, the, the, what you're describing is a step down the path towards communism, um, where, uh, you know, the powers that be know what's good for everyone and uh, it'll be appalling uh, and that's what I see from the the why I'm concerned about the extreme environmentalists because they have that sort of attitude that they must control everything uh, can't let people go free and make up their own minds about things oh hell no even though we've got evidence in New Zealand now where farmers are doing a damn good job in terms of environmental management um, they were set free and they went off and did it they didn't have to be told to do it. They got on with it. Um, so that's the sort of uh, world that I'd like to live in. Yeah, one where property rights are upheld and um, property yes. rights are respected. You get good environmental um, protections yes. that way generally. Of course you um, do. I'm very concerned about uh, limit setting on the waterways, uh, you know, catchment management, mm -hmm. all this sort of stuff. If it's involuntary, um, it, it's not right. I know there's a lot of good stuff happens in catchment groups, and but then uh, it also appears to be about how you can source money out of mm -hmm. the ratepayer or taxpayer to do a particular mm -hmm. job. I mean, farmers, we cut ourselves free from a regulator in 1985, we thought. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps we did it too good because um, in New Zealand, society gets the vista that a farm creates all for nothing. Mm -hmm. In the UK or in the EU, um, the farmers there get the vista created, uh, assisted by taxpayers' mm -hmm. money or you know mm -hmm. or the like. So they get payments. Mm -hmm. um, who's right? I I like the New Zealand way. I just wish the busybodies would get out of the uh, out of the fringes mm -hmm. and let us do do our own environmental enhancement. Mm, quite so. Quite so. Um, uh, takes me back to. Um, um, Karl Popper, uh, who wrote a book about uh, democracy, the open society, in fact. Um, and he said that, uh, he effectively argued that society works best where things are open. Um, where uh, Because if they're open, uh, the, the best ideas can be accepted, the worst ideas can be challenged down. Um, but it only works if it's open, uh, where both sides can have the argument. And that includes the fourth estate. And and so, in the last and certainly in my lifetime, uh, we've gone uh, from quite an open society to a much more closed society where debate uh, is is not even allowed in some areas. Like we've talked about climate change and uh, ETS, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You're not allowed to debate these matters. That they're, they're beyond the pale. Mm. Yeah, completely. Nobody's talking, and the last three years have certainly sort of got this whole agenda on steroids well mm -hmm. over a hundred years ago, Upton Sinclair, an American writer. You know, his words I often remember, we put it today as colloquially saying, follow the money, but he mm -hmm. put it uh, far better. He said, it is difficult to get a man 
to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. <laughs> Salaries before yeah. science. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. the gravy train rolls, train rolls on. And I've seen it, be it these students who have now got $9 million. So how we need to realize there's no free lunches. If every anytime you get some bit of money, be it with the catchment group, be it something else, there is a hook attached. There is mm. something there. Mm. And uh, these partnerships, especially, I, I see them all the time mm -hmm. in my current role, but I've also seen them, you know, the same names popping up again and again, news bites and sound bites. You turn on the radio, turn on the TV, look at a rural newspaper. It's like, mm -hmm. are we all singing from the same hymn sheet? How did this, how did science ever get to this? I, I still remember, I'm, I'm 44, old enough to remember when being taught the scientific method as a child, that mm -hmm. science is, you keep testing a hypothesis until mm -hmm. you get to a point where you know where you either accept it you, mm -hmm. or you reject the hypothesis and mm -hmm. move on. Mm -hmm. But right now it seems there is just one thing and uh, charge of the light brigade, ours is not to reason why, ours <laughs> is but to do or die, let's just hear. Quite, quite so, quite so. It's um. It's appalling, and uh, well, that's what we've been talking about tonight, isn't it? About how how science has been captured, um, how, how agriculture has been captured. Um, um, I don't know the solution. I really don't. So, apart from apart from arguing the Karl Popper argument about the open society, work only works if it is indeed open uh, at all levels. I think a recession will work just as well. Sometimes the pain really has to hit home before people wake up in a yep. hurry. Mm -hmm. And we are we are not far from that point. I'm gonna hide to be at the bearer of bad news, but <laughs> yesterday, uh, yeah, overnight, I was looking at the email from Miles Harrell, uh, Fontero, and the GDT has dropped. Uh, yeah, global mm -hmm. dairy trade, something around, some products are down close to 6%. Mm -hmm. And we began the season saying, oh, it could have a 10 behind it. We've moved to a midpoint of, oh, nine-ish. We are now at about 850. Mm -hmm. And the farm costs spiraling, yeah. they are not going to pull back. I've never seen costs that have risen up, be they grazing or something. Pert has come down a bit. But otherwise, once they go up, that sort mm -hmm. of becomes the market uh, benchmark. And they stay there. So, yeah, what's the fallout of all of this is... Uh, not too far, is it, Don? Like, I don't think so. Um, local authorities are, um, are talking um, about the rate of inflation yesterday, you know, in terms of their rate increases. Uh, yesterday's OCR that um, Adrian Orr seemed to blow us all the way with a 50-point uh, increase. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know why we're wanting to um, sort of be world leaders on this stuff, but... Uh, I dare say when you've um, got a current account deficit on top of all this uh, created by the last few years, large years, mm. you know, someone's gonna, someone's got to pay the bill. And mm. I know it will be the environment that's being asked to pay the bill. Mm. And the first stage harvesters of that are the farmers mm. and the producers, and yet they get 100% of the brain, even though the large yes has been created completely mm. off farm by the biggest farm in New Zealand called mm. Parliament. Mm. That's the problem. 
<laughs> they're the biggest farmer in New Zealand. They farm mm. the farmers, and uh, so do local authorities. Now, mm. I'm not saying that we can't have. We've got to have good governance. We've got to have um, a, a decent society has a, uh, a a government that does provide services that mm. the public, as uh, the private sector, wouldn't provide. Mm -hmm. um, but we do have massive overreach, Jasper, as you and I have talked about before, uh, with all manner of things being funded at a local and government level, um, aside from doing the core infrastructure stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, why is it always that water and roads and hospitals and policing and education is always underfunded? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If more money fixed it, why hasn't it, is my question. So, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we've we've strayed away off um, um, uh, fertilizer, and uh, oh, yeah. but the state of the nation is important, and I know Doug Edmeads is vitally interested in this by his writings, and you know we need to um, keep this in front of New Zealanders, Doug. We've got to keep talking about it. I think we will have our day. Uh, at the moment, perhaps considered an old dinosaur, but we will have our day. Let's mm -hmm. Let's hope I'm you're happy right, to Paul. be in the dinosaurs. Yep. <laughs> Let's hope you're right. Mm. So, so, so where to now for, for Doug Edbeats? Uh, acknowledge is going well and hopefully... Um, well, Acknowledge is nice. very, very quiet at the moment. Um, uh, this malaise that hangs over the country affects farmers and uh, affects us. Um, we'll try to keep carrying on. Um, I'm planning to retire, Don, in, in uh, next year sometime if I can. Um, but people say retire to do what? And I know what I'll do. Carry on being what I'm being. Um, there's no retirement there at all. Uh, otherwise, what do you do? Um, park away and go and play bowls for the day. Well, New Zealand would be poorer if you didn't stop, if you did stop, sorry, doing your mm. uh, output in terms of your writings, because mm. your writings are, are always well done and mm. clear, and we need those those opinion editorials being mm. being done. Have you, uh, have, you, have you read Turning the Sods, Don? Not yet. You did like put my, me on the spot about that. My collection of columns, which I wrote when I was writing for the New Zealand Farmer, mm. I don't have, now have a mandate to write fortnightly columns, but I, I do have the ability to, every time something springs to mind, to put pen to paper, and uh, Rural News is still publishing those, so I'll continue to do that while I while I continue to get the feedback I get, which is very positive. Right. Yeah. Well, I look at the bright side of, uh, you know, acknowledge being a bit quieter. You will hopefully have a bit more time for us to do a regular slot, uh, Doug. Yeah. Always but about Thank you. But I, yeah. I see what you're saying about things being quiet about rural farmers. I met a rural contractor yesterday, actually, mm -hmm. last evening in town, and he was talking about how farmers have closed their checkbooks. Yep. And I was like, and he says, you know, prices are good, commodity prices. And I'm like, but so are the costs. Yes, the checkbooks indeed. are closed mm -hmm. for a reason. Mm -hmm. There's a not, not a lot falling out at the bottom once you factor in how much costs have risen on farm. And it's yeah. it's reflected, I don't know how urban New Zealand looks at it. Some would probably think that, you know, farmers are minting money at this point. But I stopped <laughs> at our four square coming home tonight. Yeah. I stopped at two. So yeah. only yeah. one of the two had eggs. So got yeah. them from the one that was available. Mm -hmm. And the butter was $9 something. 
mm-hmm. cheese was close to 17 the one mm-hmm. on special was $12.99 yeah it's it's you can see exactly where it's going to hit people in the wallet be it mm-hmm. the rural green agenda mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the urban and that's why it is important that we keep on talking mm-hmm. yeah well, let's hope we do that i'm i'm certainly happy to contribute my bit um, but like, like uh, I think you've used the word dinosaur, we, we're being treated, and once you get over 70, you're treated as a dinosaur in this country. But um, I, while I still think I've got something to contribute, I'll, I will continue to speak. Yeah, and and we so, are very grateful you are speaking. Yeah, and valued, valued by all, all of us that listen, uh, and farmers and, and those of us that are uh, mm-hmm. so urban dwellers and our listeners on Reality Check Radio that just want to know what's going on. This is all part of the education process and we thank you for it, Doug. Thank you so much to everyone who's been listening in to this chat with Dr. Doug Edmeads. This was Greenwashed with Jasprit Boparai, Don Nicholson, and our special guest tonight, Dr. Edmeads. We look forward to having him back again and to you joining us once again. Thank you and bye-bye. Jasprit Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR. Reality Check Radio.